You're listening to the Restoration Church Podcast. We are a local congregation in Lexington, Kentucky, and we would love to see you join God's restoring work of love in your life. You can find out more about us at restorationlex.com slash welcome. There's helpful links about how you can grow, how you can serve, and be good news in our city. Thanks for listening. So last week, I found myself in a situation that for the sake of my own spiritual health, for the sake of my mental health, I try to avoid at all costs. For a short time, of about 15 minutes or so, I find myself in earshot of cable news. And I could not get away from it. I couldn't say, hey, please turn that off. Now, I'm not advocating, as I say that, for you to bury your head in the sand and not know what's going on in the world while everything burns. I'm not saying that whatsoever. I do know that in this day and age, it's important for us to not not just be informed, to be informed but not be engrossed in the news, right? To be informed about what's happening but to not be consumed by what we are consuming. But as I was listening to it, you see how much it's designed to not just inform you but to keep your attention by any means necessary. And the best way to keep your attention by any means necessary is to find the enemy, to know who the enemy is and to talk about the enemy, and to keep talking about the enemy. Talk about the enemy as those people. And those people, they don't just disagree with the way we see the world. Those people, they're evil. They're bad. And you begin to see people not just as evil, as you listen to this over and over and over and over again, you begin to see them as subhuman. Aldous Huxley, who wrote the classic novel Brave New World, he said something profound about this. He says, the propagandist purpose is to make one set of people forget that a certain other sets of people are human. And I would argue that in this time, this is one of the great temptations of our age. No matter where you and I land, socially or politically, it is so easy to just lapse into dehumanizing people with which we disagree to see them as subhuman, to fail to honor and recognize the humanity of others and ourselves as well. And because of this, we need to remember afresh how our story speaks to what it means for you and I and for our neighbors and even our enemies to be human. In the very first chapter of the Bible, as the foundations are being laid for our story, this is spoken to directly in a very unique way. Look with me in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 28. It says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, something astounding is happening in these words. We've maybe heard these a lot in our lifetime if we've grown up in church, but I don't want us to miss how profoundly important what is being spoken here is. Not only are we made by God, we're made in his image, 
Now, chances are you've probably heard these words made in the image of God before, but how many of us on a regular basis stop and wonder what that actually means to be made in the image of God, and why does that matter? So in these next three weeks, that's kind of what we're unpacking together in this Images of God series, how this is foundational for how we understand the character of God, how we understand who we are, And maybe most importantly in our time, how we understand who our neighbors are. And it begins with this word itself. In the Hebrew, this word is selim. And this idea of selim is an image. It's a very concrete word. And here's where this kind of gets strange. When you take this word and you look at almost every other instance of this word in the Old Testament, it's speaking about an idol. It's talking about a statue, literally a concrete representative of a king or a deity. This is really weird because in a way, the Bible is telling us that we are idols of God. That sounds weird, doesn't it? It sounds strange to say, but this is what we need to see in Genesis, specifically here in the creation story, that In the ancient Near Eastern context, this means something incredibly profound. Selims, these selims are idols. They had a very specific role in the ancient world. First, if you're a king or you're a ruler and you conquered a large, vast amount of territory, it was impossible, clearly, for you to be physically present in every place that you ruled and reigned. So in your place, you would set up a statue, a selim, an idol, and this would be set up to represent that you ruled and reigned over this land even though you were not present. And in the same way, it was a common practice in that time too, when you dedicated temples of worship, no matter what religion it was, You would dedicate these temples, and as you ended this ceremony, you would place an idol or an image of the God that you worshipped in the temple, and as you consecrated this, it marked that the presence of that God was among you. You see where we're going here? We were made to represent the character and the purpose of God in the world. We are living representations of God in the world around us. There's one other way this language speaks to itself, though. It happens a few chapters later in Genesis 5-3 when it's describing the, the genealogy of Adam. It says, when Adam had lived 130 years. By the way, living 130 years sounds miserable. But when Adam had lived 130 years... He had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, Selim, and he named him Seth. So so this is is not just representation, ambassador language. This is familial language. This is what's happening through this word. Being an image of God, you and I, we are more than simply the difference between the rest of creation. It doesn't just mean that we're better than the other animals and fish and sea. It literally tells us that being the image of God is about our identity and about our vocation. We are God's representatives, but we're also, as God's representatives in the world, we are God's family. We are sons and daughters. We bear the family resemblance made in the image of not just God, made in the image of 
our Father. And what makes this, I think, all the more astounding is how radically different this story, this origin story that we share is different from the other creation stories that were happening in the ancient world at the time. Probably the most prominent creation story in the time that this was being written down for the first time after many years of being passed down was the Babylonian creation story called the Enuma Elish, which sounds very dangerous. And in this creation account, what happens is the cosmos is it's, it's inhabited by all these ancient gods, and they're always at war. They're always fighting one another. And the god who comes out on top is this god named Marduk, which sounds like a Marvel character or something. Maybe he is, for all I know. Who he then decrees this other god named Ea to make mankind from the blood and the corpses of the dead gods. This really sells. This would go well. And one of the tablets, this is an actual sighting from one of the tablets that's been found of this creation story. It says, from his blood, he created mankind on whom he imposed the services of the gods and set the gods free. After the wise Ea had created mankind and had imposed the service of the gods upon them, the task is beyond comprehension. In other words... The story that's being told to these people is that you are the children of violent. You've been formed in a violent world, and your very makeup comes from the blood of war. And not only are you formed in and by and for violence, you serve no purpose other than being a slave to these angry gods, being servants and making their lives easier, not yours. And in this world, anyone who was considered to be in the image of God were the kings, the powerful, the rich. It was a stratified world that only the, the people up there got to be made in the image of God. But the rest of us, we're down here. We're servants and slaves of these angry gods. Now, imagine into that world this radically different story being told, a story about a creator God who forms us not from violence, but from peace. A God who doesn't make slaves, He makes sons and daughters. If I'm simply made, you and I, if we're made as no more than a slave of a vengeful God, then my worth then, if that's true, is found in how I perform, how much I produce, right? I'm only as valuable as I am useful. Some people have made the God of the Bible out to be that way. I'll spend my life in fear. I will constantly wonder whether one slip-up will cause this angry, vengeful God to discard me because I did not live up to His perfect expectations. That's what comes from the Babylonian creation story. But let me ask you, what about the modern American creation stories? What would you say is our, you and I, what is the creation stories we're swimming in? Perhaps it goes something like this. You're, you're born into a family or a culture or a religious background, but whatever you call it doesn't really matter. What matters is that out of that you come and you make yourself. You are what you achieve. You are who you are in comparison to others. It is a matter of how much you make, how well you are known, how much you produce. In the end, you are your own creator. So you can never rest 
But guess what? Guess what? When you're, you're God, you can't rest. You're always tired and weary. When you have to create yourself, that creation process can never rest, can never end. It's why this world and the stories we're being told are exhausting us, because we cannot be the God that we are promised we are supposed to be. And we're exhausted. You never get to stop creating who you are. You never get to stop proving your worth in comparison to others. And so, yeah, you may not be a slave to an ancient God somewhere in Babylon, but you are a slave to impossible expectations. You're a slave to the creation story that America demands of you. So let me ask you, what creation story are you living from? You may not be living from a violent Babylonian God, but... Maybe the American dream weighs you down just as heavy. Either way, this is how we understand ourselves, how we understand where we come from, and this idea marks the entirety of our lives, which is why what we gather around today is not the story of a violent, angry God. And even better, it's not the story of an American dream where you constantly have to live under the burden of creating yourselves as your own God. The story is that you are made in the image of God. And that bearing God's image is a gift of grace. Think about it. When we are created in the image of God, we did nothing to make that happen. It is not something we achieve. It is something that you and I receive in our life with God. The very next chapter, Genesis chapter 2, is the creation narrative unfolds. There's this big picture in Genesis 1, and then it becomes more intimate in chapter 2. It says, Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Think about how close that is. And the man became a living being. Whereas Genesis 1 paints a big picture of a creator God who speaks the world into existence, Genesis 2 turns the story over and shows us that we were created with intimacy and intentionality. In a world where people are being forming idols in the image of their God, our story is about a God who forms us in His image with intimacy and intentionality. Now, I know as we talk about the creation story, there is a lot of controversy, unfortunately, around the reliability of the creation accounts. I, I've probably had more conversations around people's doubts and faith crises around the idea within Christianity, this doubt and disillusionment coming from can science and faith coexist? Can you believe in God and also trust the findings of science? And, and for some, on both sides, they've been told that it is a non-negotiable. You have to choose one or the other. And I've sit across a lot of tables drinking coffee with people who have had their faith wrecked by that either-or mentality. And so this morning, we don't have time to get into this. There's some resources on your group guide you can find on the website that I would love to point you to, but let me just say this very briefly. Genesis is never meant to be a scientific textbook. 
It was never written to answer Western post-enlightenment questions that we force upon it. Genesis 1 through 3 is a poem. You don't open up books written by Robert Frost about walking and finding the road less traveled and thinking that the point of the story is to figure out which road that he's walking on. To actually seek that out is to miss the point of what the author is intending. And that's the tragedy of these controversies, is it focuses your attention on the worst thing possible to do, on what the author absolutely does not in any way intend you to do. You missed the theological forest for the trees. And we end up caring more about being right over and against other people than being changed by what Genesis 1 through 3 is actually speaking to us, right? So please know this today. It is Jesus and not your opinion on the creation narrative that is the source of your salvation. Okay? It is Jesus. And there is room for healthy dialogue. There's room for disagreement. You don't have to agree with me to belong here. This is one of the many controversies that get us distracted in the church. But speaking this as well, Here's what we can, I believe, agree on. No matter how we're gathering around this issue, all the controversies fade away as we focus on what the story is actually saying to us. And that's this. You are not an accident. You were made with intimacy and an intentionality that is by and for the love of God. And you aren't just made. The Bible says you're formed that God is intimately forming who you are. Psalm 139 speaks to this. It says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that well. In Hebrew, I love this, fearfully and wonderfully means set apart with reverence. God is forming us as image bearers with reverence and holiness. Meaning we are not accidents and afterthoughts to God. You are not just snapped and appear. God sees you like Ephesians 2 says that you are God's workmanship. God forms you like a piece of art. I love the NLT says you are God's masterpiece formed with intentionality and intimacy. Before you and I were even aware of how our existence moved forward, before we had accomplished absolutely anything with our lives, we have dignity and worth and value that cannot be taken away from us. We have dignity, worth, and value that cannot be achieved by what we do, not performed into being. You have that as image bearer. This is a gift of the one who made you, who formed you in your womb, and it cannot be taken away. And here's the thing, my friends, today, if that's true about you, it's true for your neighbor. And let me tell you, my friends, once again, if it's true for your neighbor, it's true for your enemy. I cannot convey how important this is for us in this time, in this world that we inhabit 
I think, I believe with all my heart that the foundation of our social imagination as Christians, the bedrock of any kind of political involvement that we could ever want, the starting point for how we understand the mission of our lives as a church together is honoring the image of God in others. That's where it begins. There is no social imagination without believing that people are made in the image of God. There is no politics without believing that people are made in the image of God. There is no mission in the church if we can't honor the image of God in others. Now, is that easy? No. (laughs) No, it's not always easy. On a personal level, it's difficult to love those who have failed to love us who have betrayed our trust, it is hard to honor the image of God in people who have hurt us deeply. It's hard not to dehumanize people who make it their job to dehumanize others. It's hard to honor the dignity and worth and the value of those who refuse to not only see it in themselves, but see it in their neighbors. And sadly, often this demonization, this dehumanization is done in the name of Jesus. Ironically, demeaning the image of God in others, what they do, that's, that's idolatry. When you dishonor the image of God, you are worshiping an idol. That's what the Bible makes clear. I love how Anne Lamott puts it. She says, you can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. How do we know this to be true? All we got to do is look to Jesus. Colossians 1 says that Jesus is what? The image of the invisible God. When Genesis 1 promises that we'll be made as image bearers, reflecting God's perfect character and purpose in the world, where we failed, Jesus did not. Jesus is the perfect image of God. Where we have fallen short, Jesus does not. He perfectly images God. And in the cross, not only does God bear the weight of our sin and failures, He makes a way for us, for you and I, to live out what we were created for in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, to bear His image with glory and honor in this world, to represent His character and His purpose. Listen how Colossians 3 calls us to this. It says, do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old self according with its practices and have put on the new self. You are being renewed in knowledge according to what? To the image of your Creator. Do you see what restoration looks like in each one of us? Your image-bearing identity is being restored back to God is being formed into the image of Jesus. You're not becoming something different. You're becoming who you were already created to be in Christ. That's good news. And the clearest way that we see this renewal in our lives, the clearest way we understand the outworking of restoration day in and day out is how we love our neighbors. It's how we love even our enemies. We inhabit an increasingly pluralistic world, meaning that there are many 
different types of beliefs and practices that surround us on a daily basis. We are becoming quickly, if not already, a very post-Christian society, and we have a choice. Some believers are responding by standing over and against others, by being combative, by dehumanizing and demonizing those who are not like us, or we can choose in a world like this to live into the way of Jesus. We can choose to bear the image of the one we were created for. I want to close with a statement from Duquan that has been a challenge to me time and time again in this conversation, especially. He says, it's impossible to love someone you disagree with when you secretly believe they need Jesus more than you do. It's not a question of whether our world will take us in places where people think and believe and act and live and vote different from us. The question for us is, will we meet people like Jesus with love and honor the image of God in people, even those who can't understand and see it in themselves? And so I want to close today as we move into a time of response, just with a, a time of repentance, really. Most of us probably fall in one of these two camps. Sometimes we fail to see and honor the image of God in ourselves. We fail to understand the dignity and worth and value that is an inherent gift that we have already received, that we do not earn, that we have been offered by grace. And today we need to be reminded and live into the image of God, the glory that God has given us in and through His Son. If that's you today, live into that. Receive that gift. Secondly, if we're honest, there's people we're thinking about as we talk about this today that we have struggled deeply to love, that we have struggled deeply to honor as image bearers. And if you're thinking, man, this feels too big for me. I can't do this on my own. You are right. You can't. We need transformation, the restoration of God's image in us to allow that love to come outward towards our neighbors and our enemies. We see the love we have for God worked out in our lives in the way that we are learning to love one another and love our neighbors. And so today, maybe it's just a time of repentance and saying, Lord, I can't on my own, but help me love them. Help me love those people that I so struggle to love. Help me love myself the way you love me. Help me receive this image-bearing gift that you've given me. Whatever that is for you, let's respond to what the Lord's speaking today. Father, thank you for the gift of your Son. Lord, where we have failed to reflect your glory and goodness into the world, Jesus did not. And what we gather around today is not a bunch of perfect people, but a people who know a perfect Savior who has formed them and is forming them into the image, the knowledge of a Creator who loved us and gave Himself for us. Lord, draw our hearts to change and repentance where we have failed to love Speak not in shame, as I know you won't, but speak in conviction. Speak in calling us forward into the fullness of what love is forming in us by your Son.
We love you and we thank you for what you're doing in Jesus' name. Amen.